We're going to spend some time now looking at the scriptures together. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Luke chapter 7. We're continuing this series called Stories of the King, where we have been looking at highlights in all of the Gospels and trying to understand better what a true leader looks like, the kind of king that saves us, that loves us, that comes for us in Jesus. So this week we're calling the sermon, The King of Sinners. And it's from the second half of Luke chapter 7, so we'll be looking at verses 36 through 50. I appreciate my lovely wife reading the story from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Um, And the Jesus Storybook Bible focuses on most of the details from this story in Luke chapter 7, but there are actually four very similar stories throughout the four Gospels. And most commentators believe that those four kind of slightly different stories represent two actual events. We're not sure because... Different gospel writers will focus on different aspects of the event, right? But it seems to be that a friend did a similar thing right before Jesus' death, but that this is a different story from the story in all the other places. Now, you don't have to agree with me on that to to learn from this text, but that's kind of where the commentators think things fall out as they look at the technical details. So this story is focusing on sin and forgiveness, There are two basic postures we can have when it comes to our attitude about sin. One is we can think it doesn't really matter and it doesn't really exist. The other is we can actually think that we're good, that we're not really uh, sinful people. We do the right things, right? Those are two different basic attitudes. Sometimes we break that down and talk about the religious attitude of sin. I'm religious. I do the right things. So therefore, God loves me. And that's what the Pharisees in the story represent. Other times we think I... uh, Just don't even care what the rules are. That's often what the rebellious, non-religious people characterize. And so in this story, we have this conflict because the religious people think, I care, so God likes me. And so he's mad at the non-religious people who don't care. And they can't stand that Jesus is making friends with sinful people, with non-religious people. But Jesus is saying, you know what? Both sides are wrong. You need forgiveness. You need me to transform you. And so this story is a great story to illustrate that. And it happens in a couple of ways, right? We're going to see a story where something happens, and then we're going to see Jesus tell a story to explain what just happened, right? So it's like a story within a story that we're going to see at the end of Luke chapter 7 here. Um, It represents a kind of formal banquet Uh, in their day and time. This wasn't really a casual meal. This was somewhat of a formal banquet where you saw people uh, sitting at an important table, having an important meal together. And so that reminds me in our culture of a wedding. And part of that's because I've been to two weddings this weekend, so that's fresh on my mind. But most weddings, at least in America, there's often a special table for the bride and groom, sometimes a special table for the bride and groom and their groomsmen and bridesmaids, right? Any of you ever been to a wedding and you've seen this kind of thing, right? That's not normally how we do business, but that's a picture you can have of, okay, now I can kind of picture what's happening in this story with Jesus. He was having a meal with important people, and then someone that wasn't supposed to be there approached. And so this typifies a general way of thinking about sin that sometimes you might have just intuitively in your own heart, but they definitely had in the first century, and that is that the more holy you are, the closer you are to God. It's like a physical proximity view of sin, right? And this is even illustrated in the way the temple was set up. There was the holy of holies, and then an outer area, and an outer area, and an outer area. It was like the closer you get to God, the more holy you need to be. And so this story is illustrating some of those realities here. 
When you go to a wedding or maybe you go to a party, it's right and good that you would question if you're going to be welcomed, right? Am I welcome here? Are they going to let me in? Do I deserve to be at this party? Am I wanted at this party? Well, here again, we see in the story of Jesus, we see a king who wants us in his presence. And so what I want you to do is I want you to be thinking about this. Do you believe that God wants you in his presence? Do you believe that God wants you at his table? That's really the question that we want to be asking as we look at this story. So we're going to read Luke 7, verses 36 through 50. Luke 7, 36 through 50. One of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you speak to us. We believe that as we read the stories of Jesus in the Gospels, we are hearing you talk to us, that you are pursuing us still today. And so we thank you for that, and we pray that your spirit would meet us here so that this would be a spiritual transforming moment, that it would not be a natural occurrence, but this would be a supernatural occurrence where your spirit comes upon us with power and we are convicted and we hear you and we follow you. God, we pray that you would continue to move in our lives and that your word would shake us up. Help us to love you and help us to love others. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this text, as I said, we've got a story that tells us something about Jesus. And then we've also, on top of that, got a story that Jesus tells to help interpret what just happened, Uh, which is nice because, as I said, there are four different versions of a woman anointing Jesus, and it can get confusing when you can compare them. Uh, That gets very confusing trying to compare what's the same and what's different. And so we just want to stick with this text and say, okay, what is this text highlighting here? And this text is highlighting some important things, focusing on the attitude, as I said earlier, towards sin. And so the question is for you, um, do you believe in sin, number one? 
Uh, more and more in our culture, we don't really believe in sin. Sin's like no big deal. So sometimes people have this concept of grace where it's like God doesn't really care. He sweeps it under the rug. It doesn't really exist. It's better to just forget about it, right? Let's not talk about it. Let's not think about it. That's one way of dealing with sin. Another way of dealing with sin is the more religious way where you're like, well, I'm a good person. I've done good things. I've paid my taxes. I've mowed my lawn. I've done the things that good people are supposed to do. And so therefore, God must approve of me. He must bless me, right? We talked about this a little bit last week. Sometimes that can translate into a vending machine view of God, right? You're putting in your coins of obedience, and God better give you some blessings out because you've been putting in the coins of obedience, right? Those are two different ways of dealing with sin. There's a third way that we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And that third way is that God deals with your sin. So it counteracts the non-religious view of sin that says sin doesn't really exist. It counteracts that because it says, oh yeah, sin exists. You've offended a holy God. You've committed cosmic treason. And he has a rightful wrath against you and against me. The wages of sin are death. We should really be worried about our sin. It's a really big deal that separates us from God. It's pushed us apart from him. It's like we see God and all his beauty and all his glory and all his goodness, and we run the other way. Sin is real. But it also addresses the other side of sin, and that is none of us can just deal with our own sin. None of us can just clean up our life a little bit and have that take care of the situation. We needed the God of the universe to send his son to die on a cross for our sins. The situation was that serious. And so this good news, this gospel of Jesus coming to forgive our sin, that's transformative. Because it corrects those of us that are like, yeah, sin's no big deal, but it also corrects those of us that are like, yeah, sin's a big deal, but I'm good, and I do the right thing, right? God, you need to look at those other bad people over there. So this story corrects that again, just like last week with the story with the two sons, this story sets up a similar contrast. So as we move through the outline, first thing we're going to see is that sinners will gush over Jesus. Sinners like to gush over Jesus. I'm purposely trying to use kind of over-the-top language there. Sinners like to gush over Jesus. The second thing we'll see is that Pharisees avoid sinners. Pharisees avoid sinners. And historically, the Pharisees were a particular you know, group of people, a particular club in the first century. But I think we can live like Pharisees today. So we want to be careful that we don't avoid sinners the way Pharisees did. And then finally, uh, we'll see in this last point that forgiven sin then produces love. And that comes from that little parable that Jesus talks about, the money lenders. So forgiven sin will produce love. So the first thing we want to review is this idea that sinners gush over Jesus. I've got too many things here on my podium. I'm going to put this down. I'm going to talk about this later. This is the book, The Cure by John Lynch. I'm just going to hold it up now because it's in my way. So now that you've seen it, I can put it out of the way. All right. Um, It's a great book that helps us to come to terms with the two ways of of, uh, viewing Jesus. So the first thing we want to talk about is that sinners gush over Jesus. And we see this in verses 36 through 38. So just the first few verses, sinners gush over Jesus. Um, By gush, we might say, have an emotional response, right? Maybe even react to Jesus in socially inappropriate ways. I want to push us a little bit on this, especially for those of you that might have grown up in the church, because we can tend to combine uh, socially appropriate with being a Christian. And they're not always the same thing, right? Sometimes Jesus asks us to step out of the norms of our culture. So let's look at the text. Here in the text, says, one of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. So again, Pharisees, religious people, these are the people that read their Bibles and tried to obey it. So we have a lot in common with them. They read their Bibles, they tried to obey it. He went into the Pharisee's house and he reclined at table. 
Uh, can you throw up the table I have there? Uh, we have a picture of reclining at table, more first century standard. I, I googled this um, to help you. I don't know, the contrast is not real high, so I'll describe it as you're looking at it. It's a low table, and they would lean on their left hand with their feet out away from the table. That's how people would recline at table. That's what it meant, okay? And so uh, setting that up helps you get the picture of someone approaching someone's feet, right? That makes a little more sense that they would approach someone's feet because they're sprawled out and their legs are pushed out away from the table, right? So that's how they would sit. They didn't sit in chairs like we do. Um, They would recline, leaning on one arm, and eat off the table like that. So more like, almost like a coffee table in in our culture. Um, And so it says he's reclining at table. And this is also kind of a formal event. We want to understand this. Uh, Very common in this day and time, you would have a banquet, you'd invite important people, and you would have it in some kind of like courtyard or open area in the way the homes were constructed, where like the little people could come and maybe get some scraps on the outside, or maybe come and watch the important people have a discussion at their table. And so that's why I talked about weddings up front. If you've been at a wedding, often there's the important table, and then there's kind of like the second tier tables. If you're really lucky, you get called to go get the food as one of the first tables. It's always real depressing when you're like the last table to get the food, right? Um, But it's a similar, obviously, it's not exactly the same, but a similar cultural thing here where this is the important table. Jesus has been invited into this important leader's house, and he's at the important table. Verse 37 says, behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, what does that mean? Um, A lot of commentators think that means she was a prostitute. We're not really sure but she was a publicly known sinner. So just saying she was a woman of the city who was a sinner, and we know she was a sinner, and it was public, and everybody knew she was a sinner, it was something that was very obvious. It was something that was very uh, great, very offensive, right? Jesus even says later when he talks about forgiving her sins, her her sins are many. Yeah, (laughs) Jesus confirms that. Her sins are many, yet she's forgiven. So she's definitely publicly known as a sinner someone who's been sleeping around or someone who's a prostitute or something like that. She's a sinner. She's known to be a sinner. And it says, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Now, as my wife said when she's reading from the Jesus Storybook Bible, this was kind of the common way they, they kept their perfume. And perfume was very precious. Um, it was like a savings account. It was a very expensive thing. It wasn't like common little tiny bottles that we have. And even our little common tiny bottles are still expensive. Perfume's still kind of expensive in our day and time. But this would have been more like a life savings type thing in a fancy kind of permanent uh, stone jar that it was very hard to open. And so this is the alabaster flask of ointment. Verse 38 says, standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. This was a big deal, and she was showing great affection. As I said, this was a very expensive thing to pour the oil on him. But the other thing we want to understand is even though this was a big deal, and she was spending her money, and she was making a public display, what offends the Pharisees is not so much that she shows affection as that she approaches a holy man. Okay, So we want to kind of break this into two parts and recognize We're shown here a gushing which is good. She's gushing over Jesus, showing affection for him which is good. But that part can get confusing to us because that's not how we show love in our culture, right? Like how many of you this week uh, broke a giant vial of perfume over someone's feet, cried on them, 
wiped them with your hair, right? Like the whole thing is just kind of bizarre for us, right? And we, we have to admit that. But it wasn't that bizarre in this culture. So this was a kind of gushing, and it was expensive, and it was over the top. But like to us, it's like from Mars. You know what I mean? Like it's so weird. It's so bizarre. So this wasn't that bizarre in their culture, but it was over the top. So this was a gushing, but it was the kind of thing that would have been done in their culture. It would, it's a way of showing affection, right? They kissed each other a lot more. We're not kissy, especially with viruses, right? We're not as kissy. We're not as touchy. We're not as affectionate. They would have been much more so in that culture. So we just need to kind of clarify that. Like this was a kind of normal way to show affection that then was like, you know, raised to the highest level, times 10, but somewhat normal to start with. And so the big thing is that she would approach him at all. Do you see that? That was the really big thing, and that was the thing that offended the Pharisees. And so as we think about this, I want to try to take those two components of showing over-the-top affection to Jesus and take that component and add it to that it was offensive that she would even approach him. Say, you know what? In our own spiritual life, those two things go together. If you think you can't even approach God, of course you're not going to gush over him and show affection of thanks and tears and praise and appreciation. And so in the gospel, those two things are joined together. The reality that God is approachable through Jesus is what triggers our heart to gush love and praise over him. Do you see that? So those two pieces go together. So I had to kind of separate them so we could clarify, like, okay, these are two different things. She is gushing. She is behaving in an over-the-top of the way a little bit here. But at another level, she's just showing affection to someone. And the reason it was so crazy was because she was a sinner, and she should not have been anywhere close to a holy man. That was really the bigger issue of offense in this day and time. Do you believe that God is holy? I hope so. The Bible says he is. The Bible says that when people see angels, when people see Jesus do an incredible miracle, or when people would get a vision of God, they would be struck with a terror of, I am unholy. I have fallen short. I am not holy. I I deserve judgment. That should be our reality when we think about God and, and see God. But at the same time, the paradox is, we should recognize that we can still approach him because he's a forgiving, loving God who poured out his wrath on Jesus instead of on us. So that combination of terror to approach, yet freedom to approach, is what we see demonstrated in the story. We see her recognizing she is a sinner, but she's gushing over Jesus anyway. She's praising him. And so I want to start with just thinking about the cultural ways that we show our affection for Jesus. We'll talk more about why in the next two points, okay? So I want you to think about how do you show affection for Jesus? He's physically not here in the room, so you can't do what she did. And of course, as I said, culturally, it's a little weird for us as well. You know, we're not going to rub our hair on somebody and kiss them, and that's just not something we're going to do in our culture. But do you praise Jesus? Do you thank Jesus for what he's done for him? Do you cry over Jesus? Do you tell Jesus how much you love him? Is that a part of your life? Here we see that's a part of someone's life who's been transformed by Jesus. And that should be a part of our life as well. 
Some of the common ways Christians traditionally do this is through song. We sing songs to Jesus. It's getting harder and harder for us to gather because of all the virus limitations, but we can still gather in weird ways and sing songs to Jesus. You can do it on, our, on your own at home. You can sing in your car. It's really fun when you're singing songs to Jesus and praising him and then someone drives up and sees you and sees you really getting into it, right? You're like, that's all right, because I'm praising Jesus. I don't care if they see me. Do you have ways in your life that you profess your love for Jesus, that you gush over him? Journaling can be a great way to do that. Just writing down your prayers, your praises, your thankfulness. Every Thanksgiving, we used to do this thing with the kids where we would put up a board and just all of November, we would write things we were thankful to God for. Do you have ways of marking your gratefulness? Do you have ways of gushing over him? Another way we do that is approaching him, coming close to him in the word. So again, remember, this is about not just her affection and gushing over him, but the reality that she's willing to get close to Jesus, right? Do you recognize that you've been invited to get close to Jesus in his word? One of the ways that we gush over Jesus, one of the ways that we cry over him and praise him and love him is by picking up what he has to say to us. Do you see that? That's an act of worship when you pick up this book and you seek out Jesus. You want to study him. You want to read about him because you long to be close to him. That's an act of worship. It's an act of gushing. And we have to get this right in our minds because we don't read the Bible like a Pharisee putting coins into the vending machine of God thinking, if I read the Bible enough, then he'll have to bless me today. No, we read the Bible because we just want to get close to him because we recognize in him a God who loves us. And so picking up this book, taking it up and reading and studying is a form of worship. It's a form of gushing over Christ. As we like to say so often, we study this book because we believe it speaks with the authority and relevance of Jesus himself. We long to be close to him and hear what he has to say to us. So I want to encourage you to take these basic steps to gush over Jesus. And then, of course, historically Christians have said serving others, loving others is a reflection of that as well, and we'll get into that more in these further points. So the second point I want to see is that Pharisees avoid sinners. Pharisees avoid sinners. Um, And as we see throughout the New Testament, just to clarify, there are some Pharisees that came to true faith, and we see that, and they understood grace and forgiveness. But for the most part, the Pharisees in the New Testament were characters who thought that they were holy by being obedient, and by avoiding proximity to sinners. So it's back to that closeness versus far away thing. They thought, if I'm not too close to really bad people, and I do good things, then God will see me as holy. So we pick this up in verses 39 through 40. Look at verse 39. Um, Whoops, I'm on the wrong page. Verse 39 of chapter 7. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, saw her gushing over him, When he saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, this is a little scary, right? Have you ever had a private thought and then someone answers your private thought? That's a little scary, right? So anyway, this is what Jesus does. Jesus answering said, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher, say it, teacher. So he's going to give that parable in just a minute, and we'll pause here. I just want to focus on this idea that the Pharisee was horrified that Jesus would let a sinner get close to them. And I want to ask you, is that how you see sinful people? Do you see sinful people as 
like germy and you need to keep away from them. I googled a picture of masks. You don't really need to look at a picture of masks because we're all wearing masks in here, right? Here's a mask right here. I don't need to, I don't need to Google a picture for you. Um, we're wearing masks right now, and our public health officials are asking us to wear masks, but here's the irony. A lot of folks that don't want to wear masks are like, well, I'm not afraid that I'm going to get sick, so I don't want to wear a mask. That's not why we're being asked to wear masks. We're being asked to wear masks because we can be sick and not realize it which is exactly the problem the Pharisees had. They didn't realize they were sick. They didn't realize they were sinful. They were like, I'm healthy. It's those really obviously sinful people. That's where the problem is. That's what the Pharisees were saying again and again. So the Pharisees were like, I don't want to get close to that germy, sinful, gross person because their sin will get on me and infect me and contaminate me. But I'm fine. And the irony of that is, Really, the Pharisees have the greatest risk of infecting other people because they're completely unaware of sin, right? So think about this in our own lives. If you're aware of your sin, you're more able to, to point people to God and say, Jesus is the only solution, not me, not my life. I'm not the solution. Jesus is the solution. If you're oblivious, if you're unaware of your sin like the Pharisees, you're going to point people to a completely other system, a system we sometimes called, call religion or uh, being saved by works, right? Or being meriting God's favor is another way that we describe that. Are you pointing people to, I know how to win God over, or are you pointing people to Jesus? That's really the question here. Pharisees avoid sinners. So to flip that around, do we love sinners or are we just like Pharisees? We're scared of sinners. We're scared of how they might taint us. We're scared of what they might do to us. Do you befriend sinners? This is the thing that Jesus was doing all the time. He was befriending sinners. Now again, sin, just to clarify, sin means anything you think, say, or do that offends God, right? So by that definition, it means all of us. And we have to recalibrate in our brains. Sinner doesn't just mean public, gross, over-the-top sin, like this woman, everybody knew she was a sinner. It means all of us. But do you befriend all types? Do you recognize, I'm a sinner, and I'm going to befriend other sinners because Jesus is our only hope? Another question to ask is, do you have certain categories of people that are extra sinful? Like, when you think sinner, do you think, not me, but that person over there, right? Like, what that person does. That's really sin. What I do is not really sin, Right? Backbiting and gossip, no big deal. But sexual immorality, that's a big deal, right? Do, we, do you have categories of sin? This sin's a big deal, but these sins are not a big deal. Voting this way, big deal. Voting that way, not a big deal, right? Talking to people this way, not a, not a big deal. Talking to people that way, that's a big deal. Do you, do you have categories where you're like, that's sin, that's not sin? And if you do, you need to rethink your categories and recognize we're all sinners. We're all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. And I think an actual way to apply this then is to start befriending people that are in the bad category in your brain. <laughs> like, who are the bad people that in my brain I'm kind of scared of? Say, Lord, would you help me to bless that person in some way, to show love in a, in a simple way, to encourage them, pray for them, help them. Is there a way I could actually help this person in the name of Jesus that I in the past have categorized as off-limits in the outer realms of darkness and, and sin. There's a great, 
great quote by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was uh, a Russian who was thrown in the, um, in the gulag. Um, he was basically a dissident, you know, didn't agree with, with the ideals of the leadership in the former USSR. And he was a believer. And this is one of his most famous quotes. He says this, If only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. He's saying, if only that was true. There's just evil people out there doing bad things, and all we had to do to make this world a better place is just round them up and kill them all. That would actually be really, really easy. He says, but the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. The line of good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being, and who is willing to destroy a piece of his own heart? What Solzhenitsyn was getting at was the utopian leaders of his day and time, and we continue to do this today, say, well, if we could just get rid of all those bad people, everything would be fine. Everything would be okay. He's like, no, there's this thing that keeps going on and on in human hearts, and we need to deal with the heart, and that's why we need Jesus. So how can you befriend sinners? How can I befriend sinners and not be like a Pharisee that avoids sinners? Last point is then the parable that Jesus gives that shows that forgiven sin produces love. He's like, this is how it works. If you've been forgiven, it's going to pour out and you're going to love people. There's going to be an effect that's going to take place, right? James talks about this in his book of the Bible, his letter says, you can't just say you have faith and do nothing. It actually has to look like something. And so another way of saying that is if you really have faith, it will, it will produce something. It will do something in your life. So look at verse 41. A certain moneylender had two debtors. They owed him money. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Um, so roughly speaking, I, I forgot to write this in my notes, but something like you know, somebody owes a few days of wages and somebody owes a few years of wages. It's a huge difference. Like, one would be easy to forgive, the other would be very insane to forgive, okay? So one 500, one 50. When they both could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. So that's crazy. He forgave a little debt and he forgave a huge debt. Now he says in verse, uh, second half of verse 42, now which of them will love him more? So like if you owe someone $500, and you owe someone five million, and someone else owes them $5 million, and the debt's forgiven, who's going to love them more? Who's going to make more of that? Well, the person that owes them $5 million or $50,000, right? Like the big debt, the huge insurmountable debt, that person's just going to be blown away. They're going to gush over the person that forgave them. Who's going to love them more? Verse 43, Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, Jesus said to him, you've judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Verse 45, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. Verse 46, you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Let's pause there for a second. Um, Water for feet, kiss me. Give me oil for my head. Again, culturally weird. When you go over to someone's house, they usually don't say, here, let me wash your feet or let me oil your head. Let me kiss you, right? We just don't do that in our culture. So we have to translate this and say, this is just common courtesy. 
would you like to come in? Maybe you're visiting your grandparents and you've traveled in the car for six hours. They say, come on in, honey. I've put fresh sheets on the bed for you. Do you want to have a meal? Can I, uh, you want to come in and wash your hands and freshen up, right? It's, it's, it translates into that kind of thing. What are the common courtesies of the day? What's just the standard norm? And that's what Jesus is describing. You didn't do these standard ways of showing affection. She did in an over-the-top way. So it gets back to what I was trying to describe before. The things she was doing were not that crazy, but they were kind of over the top. They were more because they were kissy people. They are oil-sharing people. They're ointment-sharing you know. So they, these things are normal things, but she did it even more. So Simon kind of held back from showing affection for Jesus, and she showed tons of affection for Jesus. So verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. Now, for those of you that are really logical, we need to explain something here. Some of the translations say because she um, loved much. So her sins, which are many, are forgiven because she loved much or for she loved much. I just want to clarify, Daryl Bach, who's a famous commentator on Luke, Dallas Seminary guy, really sharp Bible teacher, he explains it's kind of like if I were to look outside and say, it's raining because the windows are wet. What would I mean by that? It's raining because the windows are wet. I'm not saying the windows are wet, make it rain. I'm just saying it's proven to be rainy because the windows are wet. So we just have to clarify that. It's a theological point. So what we're saying is we're not saying because she did this thing, God is forced to now forgive him, forgive her, but the forgiveness drives her to do this. Do you see that? And that's how our theology clarifies this throughout the New Testament. So we'll have individual verses like this that'll you know, put them together and people will quibble over it. The overwhelming evidence of the New Testament is like, no, because of what God has done in your life, that changes you to become someone who loves others and forgives others. Verse 48, he said to her, your sins are forgiven. He turns to her. He looks her in the eye. He shows her dignity. Your sins are forgiven. Verse 49 Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. A beautiful picture of Jesus' power to forgive, which was even more shocking to them. And the reality is Jesus said that that produces something. The person who's been forgiven a big debt is going to love a lot. One of my favorite charts that illustrates this kind of increasing Um, debt versus love ratio is a cross chart that Paul Miller did years ago. I pulled this picture from a book um, called Show Them Jesus. Can you show this little chart for me up on the screen? And what you see is a top line that increases over time, seeing God's holiness. You see a bottom line that increases down over time, seeing our own sinfulness. And so a truly growing believer will see an increase in God's holiness. God is bigger than I thought. You'll also see an increase in your awareness of sin. Man, I owe him more than I thought. Or to put it in the language of the parable, I'm forgiven more than I realized. And as you see that growing gap, what fills the gap? The gap, the chasm between God's holiness and my sinfulness, Jesus. The cross fills that gap. And so to take it back to this story, Jesus is saying, if you recognize that you're a sinner and you've been forgiven much, then you're going to love God much. You're going to love others much. 
If you don't think you're a sinner, that means you don't really think God needs to forgive you. That means you think you're earning your own way. That means you think you're paying for yourself. And that's one of the biggest dangers for those of us who are trying to do the right thing. Is it right to try to do the right thing? Of course. I want all of you, try to do the right thing. Obey God. Try to live a righteous life. Yes, do those things, but recognize we should never fall into thinking, I am now righteous. I do all the right things. We have to have a growing awareness of our need of God to do any of the right things that we do. And as that increases over time, a growing believer will be someone who, like this woman, loves others, gushes over Jesus, forgives other people. Is that what's growing in your life and in my life? That's the question for us. Do you belittle your need of the grace of Christ? Do you see, no, I'm in the category, I'm in the tribe of the right people. We live in this ever-increasing ever divisiveness in our culture right now, or divisiveness, whichever way you want to say that. It's a very divisive culture, right? Like, these people and those people, that has nothing to do with your standing before God. I'll tell you right now. Do we have to make decisions? Do we have to choose who we're going to vote for? Yes, of course. Pray about it. Think about it. Research. But how you vote, what group you belong to, which side of angry people you're at yelling at the other side of angry people has nothing to do with your standing before God. Jesus is the one who brings you in proximity close to the banquet table. And if we don't put that first, we are in huge danger. To say it another way, the Pharisees were the people that voted the right way. The Pharisees were the people that stood for the right things, and they still missed Jesus. That's that's terrifying. We don't want to be those people. Do we want to do the right things? Yes, we want to do the right things. Just to clarify, we want to obey God. We want to stand for righteousness. I'm not saying this or that. I'm saying Jesus. Obey Jesus. Do what's right. Obey him. Follow him. Do what he tells us to do. So what are some ways that we can love others, right? If we're forgiven much, we're going to love others much. What are some ways that we can do that? How, how can we flesh that out in our life? Um, obviously, you just start with the people around you, right? Often, we want to have these romantic ideals of, I, I know I'm guilty of this as someone who's helped to start a church, right? I want to love thousands of people, but it's a lot harder to like take out the trash and love the person right next to me, Right? So we got to start with the person right next to us. Are you going to love your family? Then let's widen that circle a little bit. Are you going to love your neighbor? Or are you a really annoying neighbor? Do you drive them crazy? Are you going to love your extended family? Are you going to love your community? Do you even know things about your city? Are you invested? Are you going to love the nations? Do you support other ministries in town? Do you support missionaries? Do you do things to help other people that are in need? Are there practical ways you're taking steps to love and serve those around you. But start close to home. Start with practical ways to serve those around you. The example Jesus gave us is washing of feet, right? He washed his disciples' feet and left with this, this beautiful picture. One of the themes that occurs again and again throughout the Old Testament is that we should always be on the, the lookout for those that are needy. Are you just aware? Do you have eyes to see? We see this repeated in the New Testament in the way Jesus sees people and has compassion on people. And we see it in the Old Testament in the way we're commanded to care for the orphan and the widow and the foreigner. So do you have eyes to see those who are needy, those who might be on the outside, those who may not have the power or the access or the privilege or the rights or the 
resources or whatever it is that you have. There's a million different ways to talk about that, right? I've got some stuff other people don't have. Is there a way I could encourage them and bless them with that? Be on the lookout. Be aware and pray and say, God, show me who needs your love and how I can serve them. And then here's a real practical one during a time of quarantine and coronavirus craziness. Just call people and check on them. If, uh, if those people are under 30, text people and check on them, right? People under 30, I don't know if you know this, older people, uh, people under 30 hate to be called on the, tel- the telephone. I've, I've been learning this more and more. Not all of them, but some of them. So call them. Maybe text them and say, can I call you or will that freak you out, right? But, but check on the people around you. Just say, can I pray for you and pray for them? It's really that simple. There are some just basic things that we can do to reach out and to love others because we've been forgiven and we've been loved. So we'll wrap up here. Again, the picture is that Jesus is the king of sinners. He's a king that invites sinners to his banquet table. Isn't that crazy? Uh, The two weddings we went to this weekend, of course, because of the coronavirus, there are all kinds of mitigations and things we had to be careful about when you're getting a group together. They had to limit the number, and I think both weddings had to like, you know, make it a lot smaller and all these different issues. One of the weddings used this thing that happens at a lot of weddings where there's like a place card with your name on it so that you know where to sit, right? Which is helpful because if you're like me and sometimes you watch, walk into situations like, I don't know if I'm welcome here, right? It's just like a thing in my heart. And so you walk in and you're like, oh, there's my name. I'm welcome here. And it tells me where to sit. And the scripture uses that language a lot as well. It talks about our names being written in the book of life, right? That if you trust in Jesus, then you will be well and whole, and you're invited to be with him. You're invited to be at his table. That's the kind of thing that Jesus just said to this outsider woman who felt so ashamed, who felt so disgusting. And Jesus says, you're forgiven. You're whole. Come into the party with us. Your faith has saved you. One of the most, most beautiful name card verses in the Bible is in Isaiah 49, and I'll, I'll read this and we'll stop there. Isaiah 49 talks about God's people needing to be comforted, that they need God's compassion. They need uh, God's forgiveness. They feel forgotten. And God says, can a woman forget her nursing child? And the answer is supposed to be, no, she couldn't. Can a woman not have compassion on one of her children? The answer should be no. But God says, even though sometimes they do forget, right? Sometimes the people who love us do forget us. God says, even though sometimes they do forget, I will never forget you. God says, I will never forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Shows up in some of the songs that we sing. You don't just have like a name card that says, you have a spot at table number eight. But Jesus has carved your name into his hands. He loves you. He proved that by dying for you, by giving his life for you, by rising from the dead. So trust him. Come to him, the king who loves sinners like you and like me. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you love us so much you gave yourself for us. I pray that you would continue to reform the ways that we think about sin. Sometimes we just try not to think about it at all and we go, go on sinning. Other times, Lord, we actually think we've beat it and we can control it. 
we see in this story that, that you are the one that forgives sin. You are the one that fixes this problem in our hearts. And so we confess that together. We see that in your word. We see that in these stories of Jesus. And we pray that you'd help us to come to you for forgiveness. And then, Lord, as we do that, as we trust you, as we have faith in you, help us to then be people that extend that, that demonstrate that in the ways that we love and serve others, in the ways that we welcome others to the table with us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.